Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, too. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest speaker. Krista Tippett is a journalist, an author, an award-winning radio broadcaster, as creator and host of American Public Media's On Being, she has explored with hundreds of distinguished guests the animating questions of human life. What does it mean to be human? And how do we want to live? She grew up in Oklahoma, the granddaughter of a Southern Baptist preacher. A graduate of Brown University with a degree in history, she moved to Bonn, West Germany, to study politics in Cold War Europe and to work as a political reporter and diplomatic appointee. She returned to the U.S. and earned a Master of Divinity degree from Yale University in 1994. After graduation, she conducted an oral history project here in Minnesota in Collegeville at St. John's Abbey, and it was there that she conceived the idea for a radio program exploring religious ideas and ethical issues. In 2001, her radio show was launched on NPR, and today, On Being is heard nationally on more than 240 national public radio stations and globally online. In 2008, her program received a Peabody Award and a Webby Award, the only public radio program in the country to achieve this distinction. Tonight, she will reflect on spiritual genius and the lessons for living she has gleaned from what she describes as her radio adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Krista Tippett. I am completely amazed and honored that you're all here on a Friday night and one of the nicest Friday nights we've had so far. So, um, and I'll, I do do I do radio, but not usually like this. And we certainly don't have pulpits in public radio, Tim. Um, but the fact that this is also sponsored not just by the Westminster Town Hall Forum, but by the library, is I will attribute that to the great atmosphere. Um, I am one of the biggest users of libraries uh, that you will ever encounter. And they are joyful places. Uh, places where you walk in and you walk away with treasures for free. So um, I am vividly aware, as I move through life, of how strange it is, contradictory, paradoxical, perplexing. I love that word. I think spiritual life is a way of dwelling with perplexity, taking it seriously, searching for its purpose as well as its perils, its beauty as well as its ravages. In that sense, spirituality is a reasonable reality-based pursuit. A deep spirit like Rumi urged us to plumb the value in perplexity. A Saint Augustine, who for all his earnestness was the very embodiment of human paradox, spoke of the point of the ethical life as learning to desire well. Not to stamp out desire, but to find its point along with its pleasures. And in this, Saint Augustine starts to sound a little bit like the Buddha, strange as that echo would have sounded to both of their followers. I spend my radio life catching such echoes, but I don't feel a need to coordinate them or reach conclusions about their symmetries. I draw people out from their depths, where differences are also in relief. And when we hear echoes there, we've entered the realm of mystery. Mystery is a common human experience. It's a common human experience like falling in love or dying. In fact, falling in love and dying plow some of our richest fields of mystery. 
Mystery is experienced by the religious and the non-religious, by scientists as openly as by theologians. I'd even take that a step further. I might suggest that people who are right now working on frontiers of quantum physics and astronomy and neuroscience may keep us as engaged with wonder in the 21st century as our religious leaders, may keep us as open to what we do not yet, cannot yet know, to the unknown that nevertheless forms us. I had a lovely conversation in the last couple of years with Mario Livio, who's uh, an astrophysicist at the Hubble Space Telescope. And he talked about uh, a famous line uh, of a 20th century Nobel physicist who discovered an atomic particle that totally overturned uh, propositions that everyone had believed in up to then. And this physicist said, who ordered that? And Mario Livio said, right now in the 21st century, he said there was a point a few decades ago where physics thought it had just about wrapped everything up. And at this point, you know, they wake up one day and discover that something like 80% of what's out there is something we have no idea what it is that we can only call dark matter right now, right? And so this experience, as he described it, of saying, who ordered that? of recurring mystery um, is part of being at this cutting-edge scientific place right now. Einstein said that a sense of wonder, a reverence for mystery, is at the heart of the best of religion and art and science. It is, I think, a quality of spiritual genius. And I take that phrase also from Einstein. Einstein uh, was not a traditionally religious person in any way, but he became a very ethically engaged person. And he looked around uh, in the early 20th century, and to his great dismay, he saw physicists and chemists becoming the creators of weapons of mass destruction. He said, science in our generation is like a razor blade in the hands of a three-year-old. And in that context, Einstein was captivated by Gandhi, who was a contemporary of his. And he called Gandhi, Jesus, Buddha, St. Francis of Assisi was a real favorite of his. He said these kinds of people and the traditions that are carried forward in the world in their names, these kinds of people are geniuses in the art of living. In a moral equation as radical as his mathematical equations, but less famous, he said this, that spiritual geniuses, that these kinds of people are more necessary to human dignity, security, and joy than the discoverers of objective knowledge. Ever since I heard that phrase of Einstein, spiritual genius, a couple of years ago, I've been following it and thinking about it and writing about it. I told Tim this is a little bit of an experiment tonight because this is the first time that I'm, t that I'm, that I'm connecting some dots in public. Um, that have been on my mind. Uh, I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes more, and then I look forward to having a discussion with you. But these thoughts are a work in progress, and it's just going to be a flavor of where I think this idea of spiritual genius might take me and might take you. So I'd like to share three broad aspects of spiritual genius, as I've discovered it, um, that may seem counterintuitive, that, that have surprised me. First, um, spiritual genius is not about achieving lofty ideals. It is not merely spiritual. It is embodied, experiential, sensate, rooted in flesh and blood, time and space. We become present to mystery, maybe in prayer, but just as dramatically through Mario Livio's telescope. Mystery is captured in the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I'm sure Einstein would have called a spiritual genius if he'd known him. After he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma, he said this. He felt like his legs had been praying. That's mystery. This passionate correlation between body and spirit may sound kind of obvious, but it was totally lacking in the religious world of my childhood. And I think it's been lacking in a lot of the religion uh, that has infused American culture. 
I had a really uh, wonderful, uh, influential conversation a few years ago with a Pentecostal sociologist, that or charismatic sociologist. That is to say, she's a sociologist who studies charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, and she's also a charismatic Catholic. She's a charismatic practitioner. She talked about how she sees some of the appeal of Pentecostalism, which is the fastest growing face of Christianity in the world by far, in that it is a full body, whole self experience. And she said, in Western culture, just until not that long ago, um, religion was this cathartic place in our common life where we sang and danced and laughed and wept and moved our bodies. And at some point, the church of my childhood became a place where you sat up straight and stayed quiet and listened to a monologue. Now, I know that's not what happens at Westminster Presbyterian Church. <laughs> and I know that this kind of event is one way that this place transcends that model. But you know what I'm saying. And so it's, it's been interesting to me, and then it, it, it seems very, it makes a lot of sense then as I see that the fastest growing religious traditions in the world are whole body experiences, like Pentecostal Christianity, like the synagogue in Los Angeles, uh, whose young rabbi, she has mostly 20 and 30 year olds who haven't been, uh, had a, a Jewish practice before, uh, they, they do full body prostration at Yom Kippur, that there's something humanizing and important in not just raising your hands, but putting your body down on the ground and saying, I can't carry all this myself. Um, Islam, Islamic prayer, Islam is fast growing. Islamic prayer is also whole body prayer that punctuates the day. Um, yoga, I think a lot of people, whatever their spiritual or religious tradition, maybe are finding that as a way to bring their bodies into their spiritual beings. This kind of embodied spirituality always remains a private experience on some level, like all spiritual insight. But it almost always happens in some conjunction with human relationship or with in intimacy with the natural world. It is almost, and this is kind of mysterious if you think about it, it almost always results in a deepened sense of our place in the cosmos, of our need for others, a deepened desire to live better, and to love better. There's an amazing yoga teacher who actually is from the Twin Cities, based in Minnetonka, Matthew Sanford, who I've had on my show, who is a renowned yoga teacher and has been paraplegic since he was 13. And one of the things that he and I talked about when I interviewed him that he can't explain what needed to be said was he's never met someone who's learned to live more fully in their own body, which means embracing what is beautiful and graceful about it and embracing what is flawed about it. He's never met someone like that who did not also become more compassionate to all of life. Second quality of spiritual genius. Living better and loving better and becoming more compassionate towards all of life these are really challenging endeavors. They're difficult to get right, and they're hard to sustain. An awareness of this difficulty, a realism about it, is in fact a second quality of spiritual wisdom that I want to name. Failure and imperfection are the very element of human vitality and wisdom. None of those spiritual geniuses, the historic famous ones who come to mind, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, none of them were perfect people. None of them were heroes in a storybook way. And neither, if you think about it, are any of the wisest people you've known up close. What a relief. Scientists and artists as much as spiritual thinkers have taught me about this inevitability of failure, the necessity of improvisation, parenting teaches me this. What throws us for a loop often points us towards places we need to go, towards ways it is good for us to change and correct course 
and grow. I wonder if any of you heard the interview I had with Bobby McFerrin, which was on the air last week, which is kind of an out-of-body experience. Um, <laughs> and him talking about, uh, as an artist, but this is one of these spiritual insights that's absolutely resonant, relevant to life, that relaxing into what wasn't supposed to happen is what allows him to be and not just be performing. And it's, it's when we are with someone who is being, who is present and authentic, that we all respond to that and it changes us. Isn't that the work of life, of growing up, of living comfortably in our own skin and being present to others, being and not performing? It takes a lifetime to get that right. We're in a church here and a paradoxical insistence on strength in weakness is at the core of the Christian message, but it is so countercultural that we can scarcely take that message in in the 21st century. And still, my wisest conversation partners bear out the deepest sense of this. They teach me that how we carry what has gone wrong for us, as much as what we know as our strength and our power, that this is essential to being at home in ourselves and to being meaningfully present to others in all of their flaws and failings. And here's a third way that spiritual genius, or here's another way that spiritual genius is not about lofty ideas and not merely spiritual. It's a matter of practice. So sometimes people ask me, what was my favorite interview ever, or what's the one that changed me the most? And the honest answer is the last one I did. And so you may have heard Bobby McFerrin last weekend, but I'd moved way past him <laughs> onto next week's show, uh, which is something completely different, with Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist. And uh, so this idea of practice is on my mind. He started studying the brains of meditating Tibetan Buddhist monks and made a radical discovery that changed the field of neuroscience or that was part of a moment of changing the field of neuroscience that contrary to what we had all believed for forever that our brains grow up, they stop changing when we're an adolescent or at some point in young adulthood, that we can physically change our brains. We may even be able to alter our genetics through behavior. Um, and he's now taking that knowledge to working with children with ADHD, to teaching kindness to adolescents, um, to working with autism. So here's one of the, but here's one of the insights. It's, it's not that easy, right? <laughs> because nothing good is. So, so here's one of the insights he makes. Um, when we talk about changing ourselves, about making big changes in our, and, and it, you know, we often talk about treating disorder, but we don't spend so much time talking about how we're going to change ourselves in positive ways, in a sustained way. Aside from, you know, the New Year's resolution, the Lenten sacrifice, maybe our weekly worship service, or our 50-minute weekly psychotherapy appointment. And here's what Richard Davidson says, that doesn't make any sense. When it comes to training our minds and personalities and our spirits to move through the world differently, we need to take seriously what we know from our kids learning to play baseball or playing the piano. We have to practice. And at the orthodox core of our great traditions, all the beliefs and arguments and positions that we're very familiar with, they're all underpinned by virtues, practices, like Love, practical love, compassionate attention, care for the weak and the stranger. Virtues are at the heart of spiritual genius. Virtues, I like to think of as spiritual technologies, apps for the vagaries of flesh and blood, time and space. Virtue anchors mystery in the strangeness of life. Virtue is not a big part of our cultural vocabulary. Certainly not as much as I think it should be. And I think one reason for that is that a lot of good words get kind of ruined 
when they become part of our cultural discourse. They get watered down or they get politicized. Even some words that are so meaningful for many, so meaningful for religious traditions, words like compassion, forgiveness, peace, justice, love, you know, there's one that's ruined or fraught at the very least, something you fall into. So in closing, I'd like to name uh, a few examples of virtues that point at those classic spiritual ideals, that make them more possible, um, but point at them with language that kind of gives us some fresh and compelling ways into them. You know, I collect these fresh and compelling language into ancient truths. And one of those virtues is the cultivation of beauty and an attentiveness to beauty. I hear about beauty all the time in my conversations and in very unexpected places. I've come to think of beauty as a core, as a moral value, a kind of litmus test for whether something might be of God, a quality that is essential to life. And I got that phrase, moral value, a core moral value, from my, some of my Muslim conversation partners. Um, there is an absolutely central teaching that God is beauty and God loves beauty. And uh, one of the you know, very wonderful conversations I had in the earliest years after 2001 was with a Muslim jurist uh, lawyer named Khaled Abu Al-Fadl, who is very insistent that for him the crisis that, that is present in parts of Islam globally um, is a, it will be resolved uh, partly in terms of recovering Islam's core moral value of beauty. That, that's a whole different way in than we usually know to take when we look at something like crisis or when we look at something like health. I've talked to physicists and mathematicians who, uh, I say, swoon about beauty. Uh, they will tell you insistently that if an equation is not elegant and beautiful, it is probably not true. Um, John O'Donohue, the Irish poet and philosopher who I interviewed a few years ago just before he died, distinguishes between glamour and beauty. And here's how he did, because you know, what we get caught up in our culture is glamour, and we, we, so we have kind of, our brain goes to confusing places when we think about beauty, and we have to get some clarity on that. But here's how he defines real beauty. That in, in, in whose presence, or in the presence of which, we feel most alive. Humor is another common denominator, I think, of virtue, of spiritual genius. The iconic person who comes to mind, uh, who told me resolutely, and I have to believe him, that God has a sense of humor is Desmond Tutu, and you know he embodies that. He, he, he is, he, he displays that. Um, but it comes up again and again, and I, I will say I, I have not encountered a deeply wise person who did not have a great sense of humor. I'd also call out the virtue of asking good questions. We equate, we equate virtue in a kind of abstract sense with having the right answers. But this virtue of asking good questions is one that our public life really needs. Uh, I was at a gathering recently of pastors and people who are helping, of Lilly Endowment, um, people who are pas nurturing pastoral health, and the life of the church in this very interesting century. And I was so struck by one conversation some people were having about, as they became attentive to what's going on in churches and what's going on in the life of spiritual leaders, and how that might connect with the culture. He said, we're so amazed at the discussions people are not having. And he told a story about a biblical passage about a sermon, and I think it was about Genesis 1, and I think the question someone asked was, well, did it really happen in six days? And, but it, it could have been anything. And he, he said that the point is, that's not really the right question to ask of that. And he said, um, after that exchange, he started to see how in so many ways, and not just in our religious traditions, but in our culture, 
the wrong question leads to the wrong answer, which leads to a wrong conclusion, which leads to a meaningless argument. Which is kind of a definition of a lot of what happens in media right now, right? But I would state this positively. I'd turn it around. Here's something I know. There is something redemptive and life-giving about asking a good question. And in my work, in my work and in my person, I was deeply formed a long time ago by some words of the poet Rilke, who said, love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. I believe that holding questions is a spiritual virtue for our time because we are turn-of-the-century people. Our age is raising conundrums and confusions that may not be answered in a way we can all get on the same page on, which is what we want to do, in our lifetime, maybe not for generations. But surely we can agree that we'd like to live our way into the answers together. We live in an intensely wondrous, stressful, mysterious age. We can only practice mining whatever grace and beauty, whatever healing and attentiveness are possible in this moment and the next one and the next one after that. It's the best we can do, which brings us back full circle to the reality-based nature of spiritual genius. I hope I've made it clear that these qualities of wise living that I've discovered in others are accessible to all of us. They can be pursued with the certainly imperfect, often perplexing, perplexing raw materials of our lives, of any of our lives. And the wonderful thing is that if we pursue these things in our families, in ourselves, in our communities, we will move through the world differently. We will, as Einstein said, we can become more necessary to the world's dignity, security, and joy. So I'd love to have a conversation with you now. You get to sit down and relax for a moment. Thank you, Krista Tippett. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about us online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker tonight is the creator and host of the public radio program On Being, Krista Tippett. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank the Hennepin County Library for their co-sponsorship of tonight's forum, made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Now, Krista Tippett, you began with perplexity and ended with questions. I think we want to have a few Q&A with you tonight. If you'd return to the pulpit, I'll begin with questions from the audience. As a pastor, I often hear a comment that goes like this, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. What's the response you would offer to that? You know what's interesting? A couple of years ago, it felt really important to me to define that. And people used to, when I was in public discussions, people really wanted a definition and a distinction. And I, I think it's... Speak to the speak mic. Speak to the mic. I'm, he, see, he, I'm supposed to be the pro. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm less interested in defining that than I used to be. And it's partly because um, I think people are putting these things together in their own lives 
in really interesting ways, and it's different kind of one life at a time. I mean, I would say religion for me, um, sometimes when people are making a negative distinction, so spirituality is good and religion is bad, they're, they're looking at too much doctrine, too much dogma, at power relationships and hierarchies. But I think if you, you can take that out of it and you can say that religion is also about community, it's about text, um, it's about ritual. And I think that that's the reason that often when people become spiritual, maybe after a period in life of not being spiritual, um, the more deeply they go into that, then they often will gravitate back at least towards some aspects of religion because it is that communal experience. You know, if you talk about a lot of what happens in religious worship and in sacrament and liturgy is in fact about it's about honoring mystery and remembering it and kind of uh, putting it in the middle of a bunch of people. So I don't want to see those two things at odds. Have you ever interviewed any one of the new atheists, Sam Harris or Chris Hitchens or Richard Dawkins? And if so, or even if not, you probably read them, do they bring anything meaningful to the table in the realm of spirituality in your view? Um, well, it's an interesting discussion. I would not say that they bring anything interesting to the table in the realm of spirituality. <clears throat> and I think that my, I've interviewed plenty of atheists. And uh, I am one who says that atheists have spiritual lives. It depends on how you define it. But I, I don't think you stop having a spiritual life in the absence of a belief in God. I certainly don't think you, have, you stop having an ethical life. And um, I'm very interested in a lot of action-oriented conversation and collaboration in our time, not just across religious traditions, but across those boundaries of religious and non-religious. I have not had the, the high-profile uh, new atheists on my show, partly because they got lots of airtime <laughs> and they did not need me. Um, but also, what I've always tried to do, what we've always tried to do with our program is have a conversation between the poles, between the poles on either side. I once got into some trouble with listeners by saying that I didn't have Christopher, I didn't have Richard Dawkins on the show for the same reason I never would have had Jerry Falwell on the show. And people got upset with me. Uh, but the point is, those books, uh, Richard Dawkins is a great scientist, but when he talks about religion, um, it's all about the people he doesn't like and disagrees with and is putting down. And I don't interview religious people to talk, to others, to talk about others in that spirit either. Number of questions about politics and spirituality. Uh, basically, that people are asking, are they mutually exclusive? Yeah, well, uh, you know, one of the things that I think went wrong a while ago in the way we talked about religion and politics and public life and media is that we turn it into a discussion of what people believe and what positions they take and not who they are and how they live. So imagine if the re-entry of Christians into American political life had meant that we had had modeled for us a whole new culture of how to love your enemy. Because that would have been deeply, traditionally orthodox Christian. So I would like to think that as we get more sophisticated about this, which I hope we would, whatever people's spiritual identi identity is, that we we ask what that means in, in who they are and how they live and not just what sins they commit, right? Um, I think the young among us are going to insist on that. I think that these words that they've put in our vocabulary, transparency, authenticity, is about saying, I don't want you to tell me you're Christian as a litmus test, but I do want, if you tell me you're Christian, to know what that means about what kind of person you are. And that would, if, if we could get a little bit less focused on beliefs and positions and more on the fullness of what it means to be religious or spiritual, uh, then religion might play a more constructive role.
Can you say a word about the dangers of religious extremism or religious dogmatism? Um, people used to ask, especially back in a few years ago after 9-11, you know, there was a very period where it was very fraught, where this was tense and religion played an especially toxic role even in our political life. And people would ask, you know, why is religion so dangerous? And here's the thing, religion can be very dangerous because it is very powerful. It's an elemental, powerful piece of human identity and culture. Uh, religious institutions are created by human beings, led by human beings, and prone to every flaw and failing of the human condition. I don't think it, 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 it's religion per se, but I do think, um, for example, you know, when I talk about beliefs in our political and public life, the way we talk about these things, I think that the, our media culture, which asks people to pronounce and condemn, is one thing when it's a political point of view, but it's all that much more inflammatory and maybe even dangerous when it is said in a religious way. So it's dangerous because it, it matters. Number of questions about uh, your show, On Being, your program. What is the process of selecting the guests that you interview on being? It's very unscientific. <laughs> uh, I started out, you know, I walked into Minnesota Public Radio 10 years ago with a big list, <laughs> several pages of names and uh, ideas and books and uh, just subject areas. And we've gotten through some of those and not all of them. And then through these 10 years, we've continued to add more names. So we have what we call our big list. We're not a fast-moving enterprise. But at the same time, we're always watching what's happening in the world and sometimes responding to that more rapidly. Um, it's kind of mysterious to me the way things, people, subjects rise to the top, but that's what happens. I'm just always, people send ideas, I will tell you, listeners send us ideas all the time, and, and, and I would encourage you to do that, but you should know that even if I think it's a fantastic idea, it might be three years before we pick it up in our production process. And so. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this question recently. We all began listening to you as speaking of faith. I was waiting for this one. Yeah, you knew it was coming. Now it's on being. Can mm -hmm. you describe what prompted the change? Yes. Um, well, it was a decision that was long in the making. And on a simple level, at some point, I felt like speaking of faith was no longer, it, it didn't describe what happens in the program. Partly because it, it sounds like we're speaking about faith, when in fact what I'm doing is drawing people out in terms of how they live this stuff, whether they are an astrophysicist or a parent uh, or a religious leader. And also kind of um, plays into this idea that drives me so crazy in the rest of media that faith is this compartment or this category over here, right? It's something you can talk about and it's right there, you can point at it. You know, what I'm interested in is, as I say, like the intersection between religious ideas and real life, you know, theology and human experience. There's also the fact that as important as it felt to me back in 2001 that we had faith in the title of this show, and I would not change that now, it was really important for us to say at public radio, yes, we are talking about this, and yes, we're going to talk about it with all the intelligence and nuance that public radio gives to politics and economics and to the arts. So it was really important then, and I think that we did open people's imaginations. I mean, we got emails every day from people saying, I turned off the radio the first 30 times this came on when I heard speaking of faith, and then finally I was captive in my car and I realized it was not at all what I would have expected. <laughs> so that was gratifying, but at some point it felt wrong to have a title which was such a stumbling block for people. We heard also from a lot of deeply religious people who loved the word faith in the title that it still meant they couldn't talk to their friends and family about it. 
Uh, you know, they ended up doing what we ended up doing when we described the show. Is saying, well, no, it's not religious radio, and no, it's you know, it's not. You don't have to believe a certain thing to enjoy it. So it felt like an evolution, and um, I think it's still a work in progress. I think we still grow into this. But the third thing I would say about it is that it's actually about what I talked about tonight, because what I'm I'm really so uninterested at this point in religion that is about making pronouncements. I'm interested in practices and virtues and how we move through the world and you know how what these things matter to how these things matter to our very being. And in fact, the word being, as Tim will know as a theologically trained person, has a great theological lineage, you know. Paul Tillich called uh, spoke of God as the ground of being, God's name in the Hebrew Bible. I will be who I will be. So as we came to this, it was very kind of painful and messy process. This felt right to me. It feels like a spacious, hospitable headline for the show. And hospitality is also a, a spiritual virtue for me. The program's having great success. What do you attribute that to? What, what need is it meeting in the American cultural landscape? I'm still honestly surprised that there's not much more like it, you know? Um, I mean, I, I see a lot of really interesting uh, media, uh, online sites about religion that are exploring this part of life with all the diversity it has, but there's not much that just takes religion and spirituality seriously as a part of human life and, and, and treats them intelligently. So, I mean, I th as I say, I'm surprised more people aren't doing this because it's really obvious to me that, as I say, this belongs, we need to be investigating this just like we investigate the arts and we investigate politics and we investigate scientific discovery and we investigate economics. And... Um, one of the things that journalists will say to me sometimes is that the reason it's hard to, to take religion seriously is because it's so subjective, right? It's very subjective. And I will say, oh, come on, you know, is political analysis objective, right? I mean, did we, did, one of the things we learned a couple years ago with the economic downturn, wasn't it, that we'd been listening, that we'd been putting microphones in front of people and giving them this incredible airtime and taking them so seriously when we, they talk to us about things like hedge funds, right? Um, so I think that one of the things that's happening, and this is happening in media too, is we are, we're getting a new grasp and it's fluid of how do you talk about fact and how do you talk about truth and what really matters. This, what we talk about in my show, really matters in people's lives, but there still aren't a lot of places to explore it in public and for it to be respectable. So maybe that's part of the answer. Hmm. One of our listeners says that she loves the statement, we are amazed at the discussions people are not having. The quote from the pastor, amazed at the discussion people are not having. What are some of the discussions you feel we ought to be having? Ah. Uh, I feel like almost every great debate we have, we need to blow it up. The framework is wrong. We started in the wrong place. We framed it with extremes. We turned everything into an either-or choice. You're on this side or you're on that side. It's a yes or a no. The things we are dealing with... Uh, have you had Joan Chittister here at Westminster Town Hall Forum? She's a Joan Chittister. She's a Benedictine nun. She, she has spoken at Westminster yeah, Church. I yeah, I mean, she's one of these great minds. Um, she's speaking here next fall, by the oh, way. Oh, is Just, she? Yeah. I love her. I'll come. Thanks for the setup. Um, so, so, so she's also kind of a sociologist historian, and she says that not since the 14th century have we had a period of time in which so many basic definitions and ideas that were just taken for granted in the 20th century are out the window and we have to start over with basic definitions and think about it, you know, definitions of life and death, definitions of marriage and family, we're going to be totally restructuring all of our institutions, we don't know what leadership means anymore, and democracy also is in this transformational flux. I mean, I could go on and on. These are big, huge questions. 
Um, and we've, you know, we've just zeroed in on, I mean, the question of redefining marriage and family, I mean, that is a big thing. And we need to dwell it in a complicated way and not zero in on what we approve of or what we don't, right? There's these adversarial debates, latch on to, to where we can really dig in our heels and not look at how can we live forward together with this. I would just, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't do justice to it in a, in a general way. I mean, one of the things I've talked a lot about is the science-religion debate. It's just, it's just wrong. It's, it's, just, it's just a fallacy um, that these two things are at odds. These are two different ways of, uh, you know, here's one thing Einstein said, you know, science is good at, ask, is, is, um, is good at asking what is, and religion asks what should be, right? These are different ways of talking about truth, and truth is a multifaceted thing. So if we just started with those presumptions, I think we would start all of our discussions over again, and we would treat each other better. Yes. <laughs> uh, one of our listeners uh, suggests another virtue. You ended with, uh, I think, three of them. How would you define forgiveness as a virtue, and how can we apply that virtue in our lives? Forgiveness is absolutely essential and um, again forgiveness is very complex and one of the ways forgiveness got a little bit ruined in our cultural dialogue is well phrases like forgive and forget I mean people who've really forgiven large grievances know that that's not the way it works I, I want us to get a more sophisticated understanding of how something like forgiveness works so um, I just, you know, I wouldn't talk about forgiveness in a couple of minutes. I might talk about something like hospitality, which uh, is a virtue that's really easy to practice and that you can practice towards people you don't even like. Um, because so when we, when we talk about virtue, when we leap immediately to something like forgiveness or compassion, those are really important deliberations, but they're complicated. You know, talk to a Desmond Tutu people who are involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This is work of generations. And uh, so one of the things I'm concerned about is how can we break some of that down? How can we break something like forgiveness down into some of its component parts and give people something to work with that is more immediately achievable and, and go from there and be sophisticated? One of the things that Richard Davidson says, this neuroscientist who's on the show next week is, um, one of the things these monks pointed out to him is like Western psychology has these definitions of the range of human emotional life. There are six in the basic palette of human emotional range. Five of them are negative or neutral. One of them is positive. It's all focused on disorder. And actually we have really complicated ways to talk about grief and pain and anger. And we are really beginners in having complicated ways to talk about compassion and forgiveness and joy and happiness. And so that's what I would say about that. The Hennepin County Library is co-sponsoring this, this evening's program. What book should we go to the library and pick up off the shelf and start to read? Uh, Who are you reading these days? You know, I'm, those, that kind of question throws me. It's like if you ask me what's my favorite movie of all time, I couldn't come up with anything. Among um, the various books at the library, suggest some <laughs> that might be good for us well, to read. Well, I'll suggest Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, from which I quoted. I'll suggest Parker Palmer's book, um, Let Your Life Speak, which is also a small book. Parker says something in there that was really fundamental in my approach to interviewing and in, say, I would say, the ethos of our show. He talks about, and this gets at some of what we're just talking about, he talks about how in this culture we have, we have really sophisticated ways of bringing our intellect into our public spaces. We know how to wield opinions and make arguments. And that we're good at bringing, pretty good, we've gotten better at bringing our emotions into our public spaces, but that the insights of the soul is something different. Um, and what he says is, and, and the insights of the soul are not going to reveal themselves uh, upon cross-examination. Um, he said, in order for us to create discussions and spaces where the insights of the soul can speak their truth, 
we have to create quiet, inviting, and trustworthy spaces. Uh, I think this Westminster Town Hall Forum is a quiet, inviting, and trustworthy space. I try to create a quiet, inviting, and trustworthy space every time I sit down to interview someone. And it does make a difference. It, it brings forth different parts of us. So I'll just add Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak to that little list. Good. Uh, could you share with us, this is the last question, unless you give us a very quick answer. Uh, share with us what works for you as a day-to-day -day spiritual practice. Well, you know that's changed across my life. And what I do now, I, I, you know, at one point I read, I, I had a, a Franciscan prayer book from England or Jesuit prayer book and I did Compline every night. You know, and in addition to anything I did that was more formal. And now I do that occasionally. There was a time when I thought I could never live without doing that every night, and I don't now. I do a lot of yoga right now. I, 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 that really has become important to me. I think as you age also. I mean, I turned 50 this year, right? So um, you start to think about your body. You, you, you become more attentive to, to your body in a way that you would rather not. <laughs> right? It's not... <laughs> So, so again, you know, when I talk about these spiritual principles, this is, this is messy. It's, it's not all happy and touchy-feely and good. But yoga has been a wonderful thing for me um, in, as, a, as a spiritual anchor in terms of getting me out of my head and calming me all the way through. Uh, so those are some of the things. Karen Armstrong, have you had her here? Karen Armstrong says, my work is my prayer. And I do, I do feel that way about my work, too, that there's something, uh, um, there's something very, there's something kind of sacred and life-giving for me about those conversations. And, and then there's just a lot of regular old work that goes around putting the radio show together and raising the money and, you know, working in an organization. Um, but I do also think that my work is my prayer. And when I'm not doing the radio show anymore, I suspect that I will probably have more structure to my spiritual life than I do now. It's kind of built into my, my weekdays. Thank you, Krista Tippett. Yeah.